0: Thank you, everybody. That was very helpful. So, uh, this week did not go quite as expected. That uh, vase encounter I mentioned a couple weeks ago was a little more serious than I realized. I had to have surgery on Tuesday to reattach a tendon that had severed. So, I'll be in this for a while, and I can't stand on it. Um, They have done all the work, but I'll be in it for a number of weeks would certainly appreciate you guys' prayer for speedy healing. I would also appreciate your prayer for my lovely wife who ha- now has to take care of three helpless children at home. So Julie's been a trooper. I'm so grateful to her. I'm also grateful for my office wife, Trey Corey, who has <laughs> waited on me, beck and call the whole week, get me coffee and food. He went and looked for pants for me so that I wouldn't be up here showing you my legs. And um, actually, none of them fit. So, Julie made these last night because a real wife is always better than an office wife. So, um, really grateful to get to be with you guys this morning. Um, we were talking this week about how to do this whole thing up here. And my esteemed colleague, Matt Morton, thought we ought to just totally embrace it and go gold throne and, and just own it. Um, that was a little much for me. I kind of wanted to pull off the, the Mark Twain, but I couldn't grow a Stash in time, so we 'll just do what we got for today, so this morning we 're going to look at john fifteen and really, the reason I wanted to make sure I could speak this week to you is because this passage is so good it 's so rich and, and so applicable to your life, and so helpful as you think about what God wants of you so we 're going to look at john fifteen but i 'd like us to begin with prayer and ask that God would convict us and teach us and help us to grow. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you love us. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he died for us and rose from the dead so that we could have eternal life. But we thank him today that he continues to provide for us. Thank you, Father, that we continue to rely on Jesus day by day, that he is the vine that supports us, that strengthens us, that gives us all that we need. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you continue to love us today, that you continue to provide for us moment by moment, each and every day of our lives. We pray this morning, as we look at your word, we pray that you would convict us. We pray that you would challenge us. We pray that you would teach us and that the result, Lord Jesus, would be that we would cling to you more faithfully. We pray that you would meet us in this place that you would speak to us this morning and bless us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all you continue to do for us. In your worthy name we pray, amen. John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine. And so this week, we're looking at a gardening metaphor. It was shepherding last week, gardening this week. It's interesting. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but in the Bible, you will see gardening used as a metaphor or a story more often than any other metaphor. God talks about gardening all the time. shouldn't surprise you because that's actually where the story of the Bible began. Remember back, Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God took the man, that's Adam, and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. whole story begins in a garden, and what I find fascinating here, have you ever thought about this? The first job God gave to a human being is gardener. Not pastor, not professor, not music leader, not missionary, not evangelist, not lawyer, none of those things. It's gardener. That's the first job that he gave to us. We see gardens throughout scripture and many of the most famous stories. Why? Well, because most of what you need to understand in life, you can learn in a garden. If you want to understand how God works in your life, just go grow something, Go plant a tomato or a tree or a flower and and cultivate it and, and plant that seed, water it, weed around it, prune it, harvest when it grows, and you will learn most of life's important lessons from caring for that plant. God designed gardening to be one of the most significant metaphors for life. So this morning, we're going to look at one of the most important of the gardening stories in Scripture, John 15, when Jesus calls himself the vine. So if you'll look with me, let's jump right in, verse 1 of John 15. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This passage pictures a vineyard, which everyone in ancient Israel would have known what these look like. They were all over the place. This is actually a vineyard in Israel today. Very common. These vineyards are used as metaphors by God all the way through Old Testament and New Testament. In this vineyard, the person who owns the vineyard is God the Father. He's the vine dresser. Uh, When God is called a vine dresser, what that tells you is that God the Father is, first of all, sovereign. The vine dresser is always in control. He chooses where the vines grow, what vines grow, how they grow, when they're watered, when they're pruned, when they're harvested. It's all up to him. So when Jesus calls his father the vine dresser, he's first saying he's sovereign in your life. He's in control in your life. But there's a second thing he's saying about the father, and that's that he's good. Because the vine dresser is always good to the vine that's why he's there. That's his whole purpose in the garden is to do that which is good for the vine. So the vine is protected and cared for and grows and is strong and thrives. And so God the Father as the vine dresser, he is sovereign and he is good. Now, in this vineyard, God the Father is the vine dresser. Jesus is the vine, the true vine. Now when, when Jesus calls himself the vine, he's saying that he is the source of all water and nutrients to the branches, that's us. Jesus is the source of life in this metaphor. So think about a vine and how, how a grapevine works. Everything that is needed in the branches, by the leaves, by the fruit, it comes from the vine. All the water comes through the vine, from the roots, through the vine. All the nutrients, from the roots, through the vine. Everything needed comes through the vine. There's nothing else like feeding the branches or feeding everything comes the vine. So when Jesus says He's the vine, He's saying He is the source of life. He's the source of all satisfaction of everything that you need in life. Now, why does Jesus say I am the true vine? Why add that adjective? Because you live in a world with lots of false vines. All over the world, there's false vines, and people are clinging to those vines, hoping to find life in them and satisfaction. And them, the vine of wealth, the vine of sex, the vine of career, the vine of pleasure, the vine of fame, all of these things that the world offers that people try to cling to that are not in and of themselves bad, but that become bad. They become idols. They become false vines when people cling to them, trying to get from them the satisfaction, the life that they need. All of those vines will disappoint you. Might please you for a brief bit of time, but they'll leave you high and dry in the end. There is only one true vine that can support your life, that can satisfy you, and that's Jesus. He is the true vine. But who exactly are the branches? That's a harder question. Actually, people have discussed that and debated that for centuries. Look with me in verse 2. Let's discover who the branches are. Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, that's God the Father, takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You've got two kinds of branches in this verse. Branches that can bear fruit, they're pruned. We'll talk more about that later. Branches that cannot bear fruit, they're taken away. They're removed. And verse 6 tells you they wither, they die, and they're thrown in the fire. That's a picture of God's judgment. They're cast into hell. A lot of people look at this verse and it scares them because if verse 2 is believers, if, if the branches are all believers, then Jesus is saying it's possible for a believer to live a life that bears no fruit and the result is they get cut off from Jesus and cast into hell. That's a scary thought. A lot of people believe that, that you can lose your salvation and be cast into hell because you didn't do good works. That, though, contradicts everything that we studied last week, John chapter 10, Romans chapter 8. You cannot lose eternal life because it is eternal. It's not something you can give back. It's not something you can forfeit. So what's going on here? Well, it's really clear when you think about the context. These branches that are taken away by the vine dresser, they are people who never trusted in Jesus. These aren't believers. These are people who followed Jesus for a while for selfish reasons, but never trusted in him as their Messiah. And guess what? You have a really easy example of that, Judas. Do you know what's going on when Jesus says these words? This is the Last Supper. Judas isn't here. Where is Judas? He's with the Pharisees and the Sadducees selling out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He is betraying Jesus as Jesus speaks these words. Judas is the branch. Let's see what Jesus said about Judas back in chapter 13. Go to chapter 13 real quick. Look with me starting in verse 8. This is the beginning of the Last Supper. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. An act of incredible humility. But verse 8, Peter said to Jesus, Never shall you wash my feet. But Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. This idea of being clean, Jesus speaks about that in chapter 13, and in 15, you may have seen that same word used. To be clean, metaphorically, is to be forgiven. It's to be justified. God has declared you righteous. Jesus says, all of you disciples, you are clean, you are justified, you are righteous, with one exception, the one of you who is betraying me, Judas, Let's continue to read what Jesus says about Judas. Look at verse 18. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread and has lifted up his heel against me. Look down at verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Look at verse 25 he leaning back on Jesus's bosom said to him lord who is it who will betray you Jesus then answered that is the one for whom i shall dip the morsel of bread and give it to him so when he had dipped the morsel he took it and gave it to Judas the son of Simon Iscariot after the morsel satan then entered into him that is Judas therefore Jesus said to him what you do do quickly in other words Judas never belonged to Jesus Judas belonged to satan Judas had never trusted in Jesus. So why did Judas follow Jesus for three years? Well, we find out in chapter 12 of John, it's because Judas was a thief. He stole money from from the collection plate, from the funds that people gave to Jesus for his ministry. Judas was only interested in Jesus because he thought there was money to be made in this whole Messiah movement. And so when the Pharisees and Sadducees offer him more money to betray Jesus, he walks That's a branch that's taken away. It's someone who publicly confesses to be aligned with God, but who has never trusted in Jesus. They're in it for selfish reasons. That's a good way to describe most of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Publicly, they were aligned with God. They claimed to be God's people, God's followers, and yet they had rejected God's son. And so what did God do to Judas and to most of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Well, he cut them off, threw them away, and burned them up. Judas committed suicide shortly after betraying Jesus. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were completely wiped out in 70 AD when God sent the Roman armies into Jerusalem and they torched it. These branches who are taken away, they're people who never trusted in Jesus. They just claim to follow God for selfish reasons. So the question you care about, how do you make sure? that you're not one of these branches that gets taken away and thrown into the fire. Well, very simple, believe. You gotta trust that Jesus is God's son, that he really did die for your sins and rise from the dead to give you eternal life. If you believe that, then you will never be taken away. You have eternal life and you can never lose it. But let's be clear, it is not enough to call yourself a Christian. Judas would have done that. And it is not enough to come to church on Sunday mornings. Judas basically did that for three years. Now, you have to choose to trust Jesus. You have to choose to believe that he really did die for you and rise from the dead to give you eternal life. If you're struggling to believe that, please come talk to me. That's the most important thing you need to think about today. For those of us who have trusted in Jesus, we are not the branches who are taken away. That can never happen to you. You are a believer. You're a true branch connected forever to the vine. But now let's get into the parable and figure out what is Jesus trying to say to us? What is the point of this parable? If it's to us, to believers, what does Jesus want to say to us? Well, it's actually, it's very simple. The point of this parable, Jesus is telling you how to thrive. That's actually what you want of anything you plant. Think about it. If you put a tree in the ground, plant a tomato bush, plant a flower, plant a grapevine, your goal is the same. You want it to thrive. You want it to grow, not die. You want it to be healthy and strong, not weak and feeble. You want the plant to thrive. That's what God wants for you that's God's desire for your life, that you would thrive, that you would flourish. And so in this passage, what Jesus is saying to us is he's telling us, how do you thrive? What do you need to do so that you will thrive and flourish in life? And the answer, very simple, you saw it said over and over again. It's one word answer. You must abide. If you want to thrive in life, if you want to flourish, your one and only job, what trumps everything else in your life, you must abide in Christ. This week after I had surgery, I didn't really have anything to do because I couldn't even help with the kids. I was just a bump on a, on a log. And so I spent a lot of time surfing the internet, and one of my favorite things to find are those memes about you had one job to do and you failed. I love these. They're so hilarious to me. Like, I, I had... 10 times this number and I had to cut them back. What makes me feel a little bit guilty though is that I laugh at these pictures knowing full well that those people probably got fired for that. That You, you don't really get to do that and walk away from it because you had one big job and you blew it. If you have one big job in life, you better make sure you do it right or you're not gonna have the life that you want. Well, that's true for work. It's true for life as well. You have, as a, as a follower of Christ, as a believer, you have one job that trumps all others. If you want to have a life that works, you better get it right. This is non-negotiable. Your job in life is to abide in Jesus Christ. But what does that actually mean? If you look at that word in Greek, minnow, it means to remain. It's a relational term. It means you remain close to someone. It's fellowship. It's following closely after Jesus. The closer you are to Jesus, the better your life will go. And that actually fits really well with the vineyard analogy. I was talking to a person who takes care of vineyards this week, and they were talking about how the branches that do best, that grow biggest and bear the most fruit, are always the ones closest to the vine. That makes sense, because if all the water and nutrients are coming through the vines, the branches that get it first are the ones that will grow big. The ones that are far over there are going to be really small and puny. So the secret to life is stay close to Jesus. The closer you are to Jesus, the more you are abiding in him, the more you will thrive. So you must stay close to Jesus, but how do you actually do that? I always struggled with this passage when I was a kid, because I'd read it and people would talk about it, but I always think to myself, how... How do I stay close to a person I cannot see? I can't touch him, and I can't have a conversation with him. How do you actually abide with Christ? Well, I learned later in life that the answer is really simple because it's right here. In verse 10, Jesus tells us, absolutely as plain as day, here's how you abide. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. It's very simple. If you want to abide in Christ, you do it through obedience. You must obey Jesus to stay close to Jesus. Now, let's just stop for a moment and make sure we are all clear. You enter the family of God through faith alone, not through obedience, you become a vine, atta- you become a branch attached to the vine through faith alone. But now that you're part of God's family, what is required of you day after day if you want to grow closer to Jesus? You got to obey. There's no other way. You must obey Jesus to draw close to Jesus. It's really a very simple cause and effect there in verse 10. If you want to abide, you must obey. Obey to abide. And Jesus himself is actually the best example of that. Jesus perfectly obeyed God the Father, and the result was perfect intimacy. God the Father and Jesus the Son have known a a relationship that's stronger than any relationship you've ever known, because Jesus perfectly obeyed. That's a, a universal truth for believers. Obedience always draws us closer to God. We enter the family through faith, but we draw close to our Father through obedience. That is such an important point to John, the guy who wrote this gospel, that he wrote a whole book about that idea later in the New Testament, First John. He talks to believers about how do we draw close and have fellowship with God the Father and Jesus His Son. He says in chapter 1, God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. There's no sin. There's no evil in God. He always exists in perfect light, perfect holiness. So if we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we walk in sin, then therefore we are lying and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, that is in righteousness, in obedience, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. He's writing to believers who want to know how do we draw close to God and have fellowship with him? John says, you gotta obey. It's just a simple reality. There's no way around it. This is just simple logic. If God is, Is righteousness and you are committing unrighteousness, then you're not near God. You're walking in the dark. God is always the light. So, how do you fix that problem? Well, you're still in God's family, but there's this distance between you that won't be fixed until you begin to obey. That's actually, it's really easy to understand this. These theological truths, they really come home when you think about parenting. You parents who are out there, you actually see this all the time. I have two kids. I love them. They will always be my kids. I love them. I love Luke and Gracie. They'll always be mine. But sometimes they disobey. Sometimes they rebel and and they're really whiny and really frustrating. And when they disobey, it creates distance between us. Things get tense between me and my son when he bucks up on me. Things get distant and tense and uncomfortable. We're not enjoying fellowship with each other. But he's still my son. There's nothing Luke could ever do that would cause me to kick him out of my family. Always my son, but our relationship's not going to feel close until he begins to obey. That's how your life works with God. You are always God's child. You can never lose that. But so long as you walk in sin, it's not going to feel comfortable between you and God. You're not going to feel close to him. You're not going to have fellowship with him. You're not going to be abiding with him because he is holy and righteous, good. He is light. And you are choosing darkness. You must obey to draw close to God. So you abide through obedience. And when we look at what Jesus says, that's especially the obedience of loving others. Jesus gave a lot of commands, and so it can feel a little overwhelming. Okay, I've got to obey Jesus, but he said a lot of stuff. A lot of it's really hard. What do I focus on? Well, Jesus cuts through everything down to the heart of the matter. The most important command for you to obey is found uh, right towards the next part of the passage, verses 12 and 13. Look where we left off, verse 12. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you greater love has no one than this that one lay down his life for his friends the number one commandment for jesus here in the book of john is love love one another and you'll end up fulfilling all the other commands being a good husband being a good parent a good friend all of that will be taken care of if you practice love but we got to make sure we understand what love is Love is not a hormone-fueled emotion you get when you see an attractive person. That's lust, not love. Love is a choice, a choice to sacrifice your rights and desires for the other person. So you want to know what love is? Love is when you choose to do the dishes even though it's not your turn because your roommate had a really bad day. That's love. Love, that's when you put down your phone and play with your kids even though you don't want to. Love is when you take that money you've been saving for a new toy, a new thing, and you give it to the family who just lost their job. That's love. Love is a choice to sacrifice your rights and desires for the good of someone else. And when you love like that, you're fulfilling the commandments of Jesus and drawing close to him because Jesus is the ultimate example of sacrificial love. So, secret to your life, what does God want you to do? Your number one job trumps everything else. Abide in Jesus, draw closer to Jesus by obeying him, especially his command to love one another. That's life for us, very simple, one job to do. But that's not actually the focus of this passage. Because Jesus, while he says some things about what we're to do, he says more about what God does. That's really the focus of this passage, what God the vine dresser will do in your life if you will abide in his son. God will do three things for you. Conveniently, they all start with P, so they're easy to remember. If you will abide in Christ through obedience, then first, God will prune you. What does that mean? Well, pruning, most of you have seen what that looks like when a gardener prunes a plant. To prune is to carefully cut away everything that's unfruitful so that the plant can grow and thrive better. That that word fits a vineyard really well. Because grapes, when they grow, when a a grapevine grows, it is incredibly wild and unorganized and will actually not produce good fruit if left alone. It looks something like this. Branches everywhere, leaves everywhere. So the vine dresser has to cut away everything less, everything unproductive, till the branch, man, it just looks bare. But the result is that all the water and all the nutrients go into the fruit. So pruning is cutting away everything unproductive so that the branch can grow healthier and thrive and produce more fruit. And that's what God will do in your life if you will obey Jesus. He will work behind the scenes to prune away, to cut away all the unproductive parts of your life. He'll cut away those pet sins that you've just never had the courage to deal with. He'll break you of those unhelpful habits that you may not even be aware of. He'll remove those things so you can be stronger, so that you can thrive. That's the good news. The bad news is pruning is painful. Plants are lucky. They don't feel pain. You cut a plant, it doesn't scream, doesn't weep. No big deal. You prune a person, it hurts like crazy. It hurts when God prunes us. It always does. So many of you know, I I mentioned a few months ago how God has brought me over the last few years through a journey of depression. That's been the thing that I've faced. It's much more painful than surgery. This thing's nothing compared to dealing with depression. It's the most painful thing I've ever dealt with in my life. I would not wish it on my worst enemy. So I begin to, to deal with depression, and it forces me to ask this question. If I believe that my heavenly father is good and loving and cares about me, why would he allow something as painful as depression to enter into my life? I wrestled with that for a long time and then God opened my eyes to see one word, pride. See, I'm a very prideful man, or at least I was. Most of my life, most of the choices I've made in life have either been driven or partially driven by ambition that was fueled by my intellect. I saw my value up here, my significance in this gray matter between my ears. I took pride in it and it fueled the decisions I made. It tainted even my good actions. God loved me too much to leave me in that sin of pride. And so he knew, that was a big one, it was going to need some pretty heavy cutting shears. That's what depression is. So God introduced me to depression because he knew that would be what would finally begin to lop off. These, these unproductive, sinful growths of, growth of pride in my life. It was painful, but it was incredibly effective. There's nothing like having your brain break to cure you of taking pride in your brain. God knew what he was doing. And so I look back at that depression, and I don't ever want to face it again. Not ever. But I can honestly say I'm thankful for it. Because even though it was painful, it has brought about a better reality in my life. I'm not cured of pride. That's not going to happen until I die. But it's much reduced. Because God was good enough to use something as painful as depression to prune me and refine me. So, pruning is painful. Painful. It is hard, but it is good. Because God knows in this world, growth only comes through pain. I don't know why that is. I don't know why God designed it that way. But growth only comes through pain. God doesn't rejoice in the pain. It's not what he wants, but he loves you so much, he will allow you to experience the pain of pruning so that you can grow and thrive and become everything that he wants you to become and everything that at the end of the day you really want to become. So in this passage, it's called pruning. In Hebrews chapter 12, it's called discipline. Same idea, just a different paradigm, a different metaphor for it. It says, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines like a a parent to a child. And he scourges every son whom he receives. For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he, God, he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So like a good father, God disciplines us. For our good. Yes, it's painful. No one looks forward to discipline. Who wants that? But when the pain passes, it leaves in its place. The end of that passage, one of the most beautiful phrases I've ever seen in Greek. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. What is that? That means discipline produces in your life a fruit. A fruit that is peace. A fruit that can only come through righteousness. And isn't, at the end of the day, isn't that what every person on earth wants? Everybody on this planet, what are they trying to find? Peace. They want to go to bed at night and not feel crappy about themselves. They want to feel peace deep inside their soul. And God is saying, I'll give you that. You can have supernatural peace. All you got to do is obey and allow me to prune. Allow me to discipline. Allow me to cut away the unproductive parts in your life and you will enjoy more and more and more of my peace. God is a good, good father as we sung this morning. He will never allow pain to come in your life that is not for a productive purpose. He never rejoices in the pain. He's not a sadomasochist. He allows the pain to come into your life because he knows that is the only way to help you thrive and become the man or woman he wants you to be and you want to be. So the first thing God does in your life as you obey Jesus and draw closer to him, he prunes. Second thing he does, he produces. He produces fruit in your life. Look with me at verse five. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So God's goal for your life is to produce fruit. Not some fruit, not a little fruit, but much fruit. A lot of fruit. But what is this fruit that God wants to produce in you? Well, look at verse eight says, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Whatever this fruit is that Jesus wants to produce in your life, it is something that will bring glory to God in the eyes of the world. It will show the world how good and loving and great and holy God is. It will exalt God in the eyes of the world. That verse should remind us of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. He said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So fruit is just a metaphorical, just a figurative way of talking about supernaturally good deeds. That's what God wants to produce in your life. Good deeds that are so good. That are so amazing that the world takes notice. They look and see God in you and they are drawn to Jesus. That's what this fruit is. Supernaturally good deeds God produces in your life that draws the world to Jesus his son. It's the exact same fruit that Paul mentioned in that famous passage, Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit, this is Jesus's fruit produced by the Spirit in your life, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's supernatural fruit. You can't produce that. You can't make God's love in your life. You can't create God's joy, God's patience, God's peace. That's all outside of of your range of options. Only God can create that in your life. He wants to fill your life with this supernatural good fruit, these amazingly good deeds, so that the world will see this stuff in you and be attracted to Jesus. Now, you all have seen that happen. Remember when I was an engineer many years ago, I worked with a bunch of guys who would not talk about religion. It was not allowed, completely not allowed. If I mentioned the name Jesus, conversation's over. So I could not witness with words. All I could do was witness with deeds. So I just kind of made it my ambition to live out that verse among them. So month after month, I just tried to be, through the power of the Spirit, a guy who was joyful and loving and kind and gracious and truthful. And and I just showed that to them month after month. And it was so funny. After a number of months, I was sitting down to lunch with a guy named Jeff, who was one of the most frustrated people at the office, always frustrated. And he just looked over at me and said, what is wrong with you? Why are you always so cheerful? And then, boom, I got to talk about Jesus. Jeff and I got to be friends and talk about the gospel that day. Why? Because God produced this supernatural fruit in my life, and Jeff saw it. And Jeff was attracted to it. You've all seen that happen. Your most powerful witness is not your words, it's your deeds. It's people seeing the love of God in you and saying, what is wrong with you? What do you have that I don't have? And then all of a sudden you get to talk about Jesus. That's God's ambition for your life, if you're wondering. What does God picture for you? Not to be president of the United States. Who cares about that? He wants you to be a light. A light that the world living in darkness sees. A light of supernaturally good fruit. He wants you to be so bright in these things that all the people around you can't help but ask, what is wrong with you? And then you get to talk about Jesus. That's why you're here. So as you abide in Jesus through obedience, God the Father is faithful to prune and he's faithful to produce and finally he's faithful to provide. There are so many Christians who are living unfruitful, sad lives because they have come to believe that God makes us choose between what makes him happy and what makes us happy. They see the Christian life as a zero-sum game. Either God can be happy or you can be happy, but not both. So you can be sad and faithful or happy and unfaithful, but you can't have both. That's a lie. That's Satan trying to convince you that God's not good. No, it's a lie. Jesus addresses that directly, head on, in verse 11. Look at verse 11. These things, all the stuff he's been talking about, I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Jesus is promising, if you will practice this passage, if you will abide in me through obedience, I will fill you with my joy. Jesus' own joy in life, he will put it in you to the extent that it's overflowing, like spilling over everywhere. What is joy? You got to make sure we understand what joy is. Joy is not an emotion. Joy is not equal to happiness. Joy is a supernatural ability, like a superhero ability. To be able to see good in life, even when it's going bad. Let me repeat that so we're clear. Joy is a supernatural ability to see the good in life, even when life is going bad. Joy is a supernatural ability to be thankful, even when there's lots of difficult things happening in your life. Joy is so much stronger than happiness because happiness is is dependent on circumstances and, and emotions and chemicals in your body that are completely outside of your control. Joy isn't. Joy is not dependent on circumstances or emotional state. It is a supernatural ability that God himself gives you. He hands this superhero power to you. He gives you this ability so that you can see the good in life even when it's going badly. That's joy. And Jesus promises he will fill you with that supernatural ability if you'll obey him. So let's face that lie again. Let's just be absolutely clear. God will never ask you to choose between his glory and your joy. They are a package deal. They always come together. You pursue God's glory by doing good deeds and he will, he has promised, fill you with joy. Always comes together. That's ultimately what Jesus is talking about in verse seven that trips a lot of people up. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And you've been around long enough. You know this isn't a blanket promise. I can pray for a Ferrari until I am blue in the face. I am not going to get one. That's not how this works. Now, the progression is crucial here. First, you abide. You abide in Jesus. You let Jesus' words, his truth abide in you. And then you ask for what you want and God will give it to you. Why? Because through abiding, your desires are aligned with God's desires. As you abide in Jesus and let his word abide in you, then you will find yourself desiring God's fruit, God's joy in your life, and God will always give you that. Okay, so let's get back to the Ferrari because I did not bring that up in jest. I have always wanted a Ferrari. When I was in high school, a friend of mine put up a poster of a bright red Ferrari F40, and that is still the car I want above all other cars I dream about it. And so, beautiful car, I so want it, but... Over the years as I have abided in Jesus and let his word abide in me, I have come to the conviction that if I had a Ferrari F40, it would not satisfy me. Because there's nothing ultimately that I need that a Ferrari provides. It will not bless me. It will not fix what's wrong with me. It will not take away loneliness and doubt and despair in my life. And even more importantly, it won't bless my wife. It won't help my kids grow into great followers of Jesus and it won't do you any good. And so now when I pray to God, I can pray, God, you know I'd love to have a Ferrari, so do what you will there. But what I (laughs) really want, God, I can honestly say, God, what I really want I want your joy. I want your joy in my life, and I want your love in my life, and I want your peace in my life, and I want your gentleness in my life, and I want your self-control in my life because, God, that is the only thing at the end of the day that will ever satisfy me. That's the only thing at the end of the day that will ever bless my wife or help my kids grow into great followers of you or bless my church or be a light to the world. What I want above all else is your fruit in my life. That's the promise of verse 7. If you will abide in Christ by obeying him and let his words, his instruction abide in you, meditate on it, God will change the desires of your heart so that they align with his desires for your life so that more and more you can honestly say, God, what I want above all else is you, your joy, your fruit, your love in my life. And that is a prayer God will always answer. He promised it right here. You ask God for his joy in your life, he guarantees you can take that to the bank. He will produce that in you and through you. So life for us as followers of Jesus, it's really very simple. We have one job, abide in Jesus. And we do that through obedience, especially by obeying Jesus' command to sacrificially love one another. If we will do that, then Jesus has promised his father will prune us for our good, He will produce in our life fruit that draws people to Jesus, supernatural good deeds that wake the world up to the truth of Jesus Christ, and he will provide all of the joy that we need in life. So my application for you this morning, really very simple, the passage applies itself, it's telling you what to do. you got to obey. If you're a follower of Jesus, your ability to thrive, your ability to have the life you want is directly and unavoidably dependent on your willingness to obey Jesus. That is what it all boils down to. And so I want you to think about your life. What area of your life are you struggling to obey Jesus? Where are you disobeying? I want you to spend some time today thinking about the areas in your life where you are disobeying Jesus. But I want you to go a little bit further and I want you to ask yourself, in that sin... Where or in what way am I trying through that sin to find my joy in life outside of Jesus? Because ultimately that's the reason for all sin in our lives. The reason we disobey Jesus is because we have become convinced that we can somehow strangle joy out of something that's not Jesus. Why does a person look at pornography? Because they're looking for joy outside of Jesus. They want to feel good for a moment. They want to feel excited. They want to feel happy. They want to feel satisfied. So they chase it in porn. Why does a person drink too much and get drunk? Because they're looking for joy outside of Jesus. They just want to hit escape on life for a moment and feel good, feel satisfied, feel okay about where they are in life. And so they chase it outside of Jesus. But those vines are false. You know that. They might feel good for a moment, but then they leave you emptier afterwards. That's not joy. Joy never leaves you empty afterwards. And so my challenge for you is to think about where are you struggling to obey Jesus and why? Why are you looking for joy in that false vine? You know it won't satisfy you. And so think about what that false vine is that you're giving into and then pray for God to prune it away. I know that's a big prayer. No one wants to be pruned, it's gonna hurt. I promise you, it will hurt. But are you willing to say to God, God, your joy is worth the pain. Jesus is worth the pain. Fruit of the Spirit is worth the pain. So do whatever it takes in my life to cut this sin away. Prune me, God. Make me the branch you want me to be. Help me to thrive, help me to become the man, the woman that you've designed me to be because I confess That is the only way to find true life and true joy. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We praise you and we thank you that you are a sovereign and good gardener. We praise you that you love us, that you care about us, and that you only ever work in our lives for our good. We praise you that you are always using even the painful things for good outcomes to make us thrive to make us grow to make us enjoy Jesus more and we praise you father that you're so good you'd never tell us that we have to choose between your glory and our joy we praise you that it's a package deal you want us to live lives of joy you want us to live lives of love and peace you want that for us father but we are so stubborn and we are so sinful And so we pray heavenly father that you in your goodness and in your sovereignty that you would do whatever it takes to prune away the sinful and unproductive parts in our lives. We pray, Father, that you would break us of our sin, of our pride, of our bad habits. We pray, God, that you would cut those things off and that you would help us instead to thrive and to produce amazing supernatural fruit of of love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and gentleness and self-control that the world can't help but notice. We pray, God, that when the world sees us, they would see you and they would say, what is wrong with these people? What is going on there? How do I get that? We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would do whatever it takes to make us attractive to the world as witnesses of the light. We pray that the result would be millions of people coming to know Jesus through the fruit you produce in your children. Thank you, God, that you love us. In the name of your Son and for his glory, we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.